All right. Welcome to Bagpipe Nation. I'm here with my illustrious, for lack of a better word, co-host, uh, Vin Janowski. Is, is Vin out there somewhere in, in the I'm out uh, here. Hello, all. In the snow drips of New Jersey. How was the snow a cane? <laughs> snow cane. I have, we have about 18 inches of snow out here. Uh, snow Mageddon. Snow Mageddon. Snow Mageddon, or like um, snow cane or something. You know, the the list of adjectives is never ending. Um, <clears throat> so thanks for joining us here, at Bagpipe Nation. This is of course uh, brought to you by the Pipers Dojo and PipeHacker.com. And uh, this week we have a really cool special guest. Um, from down off the mountain in Petersburg, New York, and that's Donald Lindsay. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, P-Rock and Counter-Rock, which is the singing, the way that P-Rock is sung, or, and, and, uh, which was, for hundreds of years, the way it was transmitted uh, from teacher to student. <coughs> and uh, <clears throat> Donald, of course, was, uh, was pipe major at the Ormore Pipe Band uh, for 15 or 16 years, um, <clears throat> starting ar- around 1993. And of course, Ormore um, has uh, been a really successful band and uh, played some really great music. Uh, f- he's a former silver medal winner. And um, <clears throat> let's see, what else we got? Of course, he's the uh, the principal, the headmaster, the uh, uh, drill sergeant at uh, Invermark <laughs> Inver- uh, College. <laughs> so, uh, Donald, welcome, and thanks for being here with us today. Thank you, Andrew. I'm delighted to be asked to be here. Thank you. And uh, we also want to remind you that uh, you're encouraged to ask questions um, uh, during the uh, presentation here today. You can do that in two ways. The old-fashioned way, which is actually ironic, is uh, to use your chat window, uh, which should be available in your console to the right of your screen. Um, You can type in questions, which will be handled by um, our world-famous moderator, Pat Dowd, an excellent piper, I might also add. <laughs> and uh, he'll be taking your questions and passing them along to us. And then the other way uh, is to use the raise your hand button, which is a little hand button, which should be also on your console. If you raise your hand, we'll see that you want to ask a question, and we'll actually be able to unmute your microphone so that you can call in um, and ask questions to Donald or Vin and myself. At certain points, so we definitely want you to raise your hand if you have anything you want to ask uh, to maximize interactivity. So let's let's go ahead with Donald and Donald. Um, why don't you just fire away? Tell us about uh, what Counter Rock is and how it relates to you know stuff. Okay, okay, Andrew. Um, I'm just assuming that in the audience there are folks who've had perhaps quite a lot of experience with Counter Rock, and there's some folks who've never maybe even heard the word before. So I'll just say a few remarks at the beginning to sort of draw uh, a broad picture about Count Rock. Count Rock is a Gallic word, and uh, when all the syllables are put together, the meaning is to chant or sing. Until the middle and later 19th century, it was a method favored by Highland Pipers to teach and share the music of the bagpipe. Most pipers and teachers make up their own count rock. This is completely valid. But the goal in doing this introduction tonight is to try to lead people to achieving greater expression in P-Rock playing. 
Tonight we'll look at a version of Countrock which has become a pretty universal language among P-Ruck enthusiasts around the world. This version of Countrock is known for the region in which it was developed, the Lorn region on the west coast of Scotland. It is the Netherlorn or Campbell Countrock. <clears throat> now Andrew has kindly placed a photograph taken by Douglas Griffin on the Facebook page for the Piper's Dojo of the Netherlorn region. And if you get a chance to look at it, I think you'll find it very inspiring. Just uh, just to butt in, so if you go to facebook.com slash Piper's Dojo, all is one word, that's how to access our Facebook page. I asked Douglas for permission for, to use this photo, and it really conjures up imagery of ancient, ancient times in the Highlands. Um, I'd go on to say that this system was decoded from two manuscripts which survived from the original three manuscripts. And these were written by Colin Campbell, we expect somewhere between 1797 and 1800. Sheriff Grant of Rothy Marcus studied and decoded the system in the late 19th century. And his information on the system has been part of the Peabrook Society books ever since. One of my early teachers was John McFadgen. John was a school teacher and a very keen piper. He felt that this information should be put in lesson form. This thought inspired me to put a course on Countrock together. This course is now available in various locations, including the Piper's Dojo, and it's much more detailed than we'll be able to do in a short period tonight, but at least, hopefully tonight, will give us a good start. Let's begin. Netherlorn Countrock is based on the plain G grace note, D grace note, and E grace note scales. I'd like to go through these in tonight's session and take time after a bit to answer your questions. Um, in creating these syllables, pipers were imitating the sound they heard on the practice channel. And at the risk of destroying the microphone, I'm going to play the scale to you now. And I want you to imagine that you're coming up with sounds to imitate these notes. Let me sing the syllables to you, and then we'll go over them in more detail. This is what those pipers heard when they heard those notes. So, let's take a closer look at some of the syllables. We write the one for low G as E-M, and it can be pronounced either um or m. I favor the first one, but it's written E-M. And by the way, there's a chart showing all of this on the Facebook site for the Piper's Dojo. So we have it all displayed there. And the syllable for low A is written E-M. 
N. These, by the way, are all in lowercase. And the pronunciation that I favor is un, but it can also be pronounced n. Now, you're going to raise an eyebrow, some of you, when I give you the next two syllables, because the one for B is the letter O, and the same vowel is used for C, the letter O. When I write count rock, I put a diagonal line through the syllable for B, so it can be visually separated from the syllable for C. In the original manuscript, however, it was just written the same way, and you would distinguish it depending on the context. So let me review the first four syllables. The first one is um, spelled E-M. The second one is un, spelled E-N. The third and fourth are the same vowel, O and O. So let's do a little practice for a minute. I'm going to play those four syllables to you on the channel, and I want you to pronounce the syllables while I play them, starting with low G, and... Let's continue. The syllable for the letter, for the note D, rather, is the letter A, and it's pronounced ah, as if it were A-H but it isn't. It's just the letter A. Now, there happen to be some variants on this. Sometimes when you get two vowels together, we have to use a consonant to separate them. And <clears throat> so those variants are ah is the plain one, but sometimes D is put in front, so it's da, and sometimes B, so it's ba. Okay, we go to E next. The letter for E is the letter E, but the pronunciation is A, as if it were A-Y. So D is A, E is A. Now, <clears throat> F, the popular one that most of us use is simply V-E, and it's pronounced VE. There are other spellings, but most often we see V-E, VE. So let me review the new ones. D is A, E is A, F is V. Now we'll go to high G. The most popular one that we encounter is spelled D-I, but it's pronounced D, as if it were D-E-E. -E. And the last one we have is a syllable for high A, which is a capital I, and it's pronounced as if it were E-E. -E. So now I'm going to review all the notes going from D all the way up to high A. D is A. E is A. F is V. High G is D. And high A is E. Now I'll do the spellings. The spelling for D is the letter A. The spelling for E is the letter E. The spelling for F is V-E. The spelling for high G is V-I. 
and the spelling for high A is capital I. So this time, when I play the scale from D on up, I'd like you to see how many of these syllables you can remember. Here I am, starting with D. syllables were a, a, they, d, e. Now, some of you at this point are beginning to scratch your head and say, how can I possibly learn all these nine syllables in a couple of minutes? Well, that's not the absolute purpose of this session. It's just to get you acquainted with what they are so that uh, so that you'll be able to practice them. Bear with me for a second. Here, Donald, I'll read it for you. Okay. So we have a question coming in. Okay. Um, so are all these variations of pronunciation of the same note, for example, um, <clears throat> the day and the they, okay, found within uh, Colin Campbell's volumes? Yes, is the and, answer. And uh, did he freely move between these different versions within the same tune, you know, like, or, or did he use, was he consistent in his use of the notes, or is it just, you know, I guess the question is sort of related to, how much flexibility do you have to move around to some of these different pronunciations and stuff? Okay, that's a good question. And the best way I can respond to that is that circumstances governed what was done. Example, as I said earlier, if you have an occasion where there's a vowel followed by another vowel, frequently it would be broken up with a consonant in the middle. And that would sort of dictate which which syllable got used. Um, I won't sit here and say that in Colin Campbell's writing, it was 100% logical, but I will say it's about 98% logical. And um, <clears throat> certainly for the man who did the transliteration of this knowledge, it must have been a considerable challenge and he put great order in it. You know, the easiest access to this information is in, uh, in the early volumes of the Peabrook Society, in the preceding notes prior to the tunes. You'll see the whole system laid out, and um, <clears throat> it's actually a pretty neat system. Anyway, I hope that might have answered that question. Can you, uh, I mean, uh, so th we have these syllables. Can you give us an example? Can you play us a phrase of some Peabrook and then follow it up with with the singing of it. Yes, thank you for asking that question. Because uh, for some of us who aren't pipers, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, I, I'd love, you know, I am a piper, I guess you could say. But uh, You're a good one. Uh, if, if you're too modest to say so, I'll say it for you. You uh, happen to be a good one. Why, thank you. <laughs> why is everyone laughing at me? Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. And I want you to know that as soon as you have memorized... As soon as you have memorized these, um, oh, one moment. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Thanks. We're getting some great questions. They're really rolling in, and they're all uh, repeatable over the air, but some are kind of cute. I'm next, gonna... next week on Bagpipe Nation, the modesty of Andrew Douglas. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Well, that's only going to be a short segment, right, Andrew? Uh, certainly. <laughs>
Certainly, I hope. So. I would hope so. <laughs> all right. In all seriousness, should the segment be long, it would suggest <laughs> that uh, you know it would be sort of ironic if the topic was modesty. But I digress. All right. Well, I have a, I have a question for a follow-up question on Campbell's contract. All right. Um, but if you, if you I'm say, only going to let bit. you ask that question now, Vinny, because you're Vinny. But I'm not going to lose track of this first question. Vinny, go ahead with okay. yours, and I'm coming back to that um, first question. You say you say that he, he took great pains to put order into into his writing. Yes, I mean I'm speaking of I mean Grant of Rothy Mercus, the guy who deciphered it. Right, uh, right. Um, but even in Campbell's manuscript themselves, I mean. How much work do you think it was at that time? I mean, pipers today make up their own cataract. Correct. You know, and they have for a long, long time, and yes. I'm sh- as I'm sure they did back then, too. Yes. Do you think do you think Campbell was sort of imposing some sort of, uh, you know, artificial order on things, or do you think he was just trying to get a head, his head around maybe what had been done during the day, which is, you know, everybody doing their own thing? I think both of those uh, situations apply. I think... I've read in some articles, some historians maintained that um, Campbell could not make sense. He was having trouble making sense of his father's counterart. And that's some people maintained that the reason he, he went to writing this out was to try to make more order and sense of it. And you're absolutely right, Vinny. <clears throat> there were probably as many different counterart dialects as there were people who played the bagpipes. Uh, because counter is a way of expressing the feeling, the emotion, and the subtleties of the music. And it, I'm sure everyone's aware that it's not just pipers that use this kind of vocable to communicate uh, nuances in music. Jazz musicians do it constantly, even classical musicians. I wish I could locate it easily, but there's a famous film of Leopold Stokowski conducting the NBC orchestra in a rehearsal. And it's very moving to a piper to hear him begin to sing the passages to the orchestra the way he wants them performed, and then have them come back and perform with the subtlety that he imparts. So, Count Rock technically is not at all limited to just pipers. It's one musician to another musician. Um, And this is the important part of the whole thing from my perspective is that entering into some means of using counter to convey music is how we begin to get to the higher levels of musical performance. I've never yet in my life met a great musician who did not use some oral form of trying to get the feeling across about the music. I, I won't go into long, great lengths except to say that I've been around a lot of wonderful musicians and they always end up singing it to one another to get the right shading they want in the music. So good question, Vinny. I'm going to move on to that earlier question. Let's get an example of how this works. Again, on the Facebook page, uh, Andrew has placed uh, a lovely setting of the Desperate Battle of the Birds. Now, this is how I got this tune from Bob Brown and Bob Nicola. They told me it's the only tune that John McDonald ever asked them to learn. They always asked him for tunes, but on this one occasion, he said, I would like you fellas to learn this because... Just uh, for the record, that is a Scotty-type dog. That's a Scotty-type dog, so don't worry, people. (laughs) 
It's, uh, it's all in keeping yes. with the program. It's, there are no inconsistencies here. Yeah, this is totally Celtic, this whole program. That was not a sound effect, people. That was a real dog no. whose lineage began way back. somewhere yeah. uh, in the, in the Scot, Scottish right. Islands. And, and, and no, I, if there are any dog sounds out there listening, I don't want you to take offense. It's just the nature of the way tonight's program's going is leaning towards the Scottish <laughs> and Irish dogs. But uh, moving right along. And going back to this um, concept, with the information you now have, you could begin to start putting together a PRUC variation. I'm looking now at variation two singlet for the Desperate Battle of the Birds. And first I'm going to sing, and then I'm going to play a bit of it. And Just for the record, Donald, <clears throat> uh, the only picture we have up goes to the end of variation one only. All right, that's a small problem, but... Um, I'm sure at another time we'll be able to add more to yeah. this. Let me try and find it here, but okay. go ahead now. All right, so I'm, I'll sing a bit first. Now, there's one syllable that I haven't covered uh, that's relevant. This variation starts with a G grace note on C, and we haven't yet talked about the G grace note of scale. But when we add G grace notes to the plane scale, we get what they call an aspirate sound, an H-breathing kind of a sound. So the plain syllable was just this, oh, oh, but when we add the G grace note, it changes, and we put an H in front of the O, ho, ho. So the first cons grouping of notes will be just H-O, and then we're going to alternate with the high A, which is a block capital I. So actually, I'm going to play the first line of variation two, and then I'll sing it. sing it. If you uh, refresh your Facebook page, the music's now up. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, okay, thanks. Well, here goes that first line. Oh, e oh, e oh, e oh, e oh, e -a Um, those are the notes, those are the syllables. But there's more to it than that. As meticulously as my good friend Ian McCarg uh, approached this problem of writing out this tune, some of, the, some of the details of the tune are not practical to express in written notation. You would have a page full of written directions that would be so dense it would almost be solid ink if you were to write in all the little things that a peabuck player is trying to do there. But by singing it, I can convey that in a moment, and that's the point of countera. Notice as I go through, again, variation two singling, the first line, how I can vary the length of some of the longer notes to create phrase beginnings and endings. I'll do it again. Oh, e oh, e oh, e oh. 
I hope you were able to detect that I didn't play all the melody notes the same length. And when I wanted to show the end of a phrase, I simply took the last long melody note and slightly lengthened it. And I chose tonight to do a two-bar phrase, a two-bar phrase, a four-bar phrase, and a four-bar phrase by altering the appropriate melody notes. Now, whether you use another Lauren count rock or whether you use a made-up count rock makes no difference. The point, the important point, is to be able to show those subtleties. I'm going to quickly go through a couple more scales because, as I said at the beginning of this session, if you learn these four scales, you're pretty well set to go with count rock. So, I'm go actually. Well, I just was. Yeah. I just, this is an interesting question with the rise in pitch of the modern bagpipes. Are these syllables still an effective representation of the scale we play now compared to the scale when this was developed? Okay, that is a good question. That's deep, man. Well, it is a good question. It's a great question. Thank you, Brian, for that. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you this much. If it keeps going much higher, the human voice won't be able to sing that high. We're going to have to get that Scotty dog who's in the big room to cover the ground. Um, anyway, that was doable. Just, it's yeah, doable. I suppose it's doable with enough <laughs> Alpo and patient training. But in all seriousness, it still fits, Brian. It still fits. But um, the matter of pitch rising, uh, that in itself would be a worthy session on this program. The effects of it. Um, uh, I have a dear friend who's overseas who is very highly educated in physics and bagpipe making. And he can quantitatively explain what happens when the pitch goes beyond a certain point. But to put it in a nutshell, certain harmonics simply disappear from the human hearing range. So the bagpipe changes in very measurable and audible ways. So that's a good question, Brian. But to, to apply it to this, the count rock still works at our higher pitches of today. Um, I'm going to quickly go through these other scales, and then I want to spend some time answering questions. I'll just quickly review the plain scale and the pronunciation now. The spelling will be up on the Facebook page. It's also, uh, this is uh, borrowed from Wikipedia as well. So Thank you for they, mentioning yep, that. If you type in Counterock on Wikipedia, uh, <clears throat> you'll see they have the scale chart there. The image we have up is kind of blurry, so uh, hopefully you can make it out. But if not, head to Wikipedia. Yeah, there's a really interesting article on Counterock in, uh, in the Wikipedia area. So, uh, <clears throat> first the plain scale, once again, we have nine syllables. Only one is written with a capital letter, that's high A. And the pronunciation, which will sound different from the way they're written, is um, un, oh, oh, ah, eh, now, we have less to do in the 
high G grace note scale because we can only put grace notes on eight of these nine notes. High A is always plain. And because it has an, an aspirate or an H sound, the letter H is going to figure largely in this. Low G changes from um to hum, but it's spelled H-I-M. Low A changes from un to hun, H-I-N. Now we can tell the B and the C apart because a G grace note on B is hio, H-I-O. And a G grace note on C is ho, H-O. Now, a G grace note on D is no longer the simple ah, it's now ha, H-A. Now we come to E. The G grace note on E is like the Scots word loch, the way that CH is treated, but we put that at the front and we have she. On the west coast of Canada, they use she. That's their pronunciation. But locally, it's he. And here we have F, which was ve, but now becomes he, H E. And high G was uh, D, and now it's he, H I. So the full scale of G grace note is hum, hun, hyo, ho, ha, he, he, he. And if there's a high, it's the same as before. It's just E, a block capital I. The next two are even shorter. When we use the E grace note, because relatively speaking, it's a sort of a soft grace note, there's not much change in the syllables. So what you're thinking, some of you now, is, well, then how do you tell them apart? The answer is, you'll see in context where there's supposed to be an E grace note on a particular syllable. You'll, you'll know it by the context. But let me do the syllables. E grace note on low G is spelt the same way as the plain one. E-M, and it's pronounced um. E grace note on low A, spelt the same way as the plain one, and it's un. We get a difference now on B. B was O, now it's yo. And C was O, but now it's yo. Spelled the same, E-O, E-O. And an E grace note on D is ya. So, if I play the E grace note at scale. Sorry, try again. It would be um, un, yo, yo, ya. And the last one we're going to do in this section tonight is the D grace note at scale, only on four notes. And here's the scale on the chanter first. And the syllables, I'll give you the spelling first and then the pronunciation. The syllable for a D grace note on low G is D-A-M, and it's pronounced Dom. And a D grace note on low A is D-A-N, Don. A D grace note on B is T-O, Toe. And a D grace note on C is D-O, Do. So the four syllables are dum dum to do 
and here they are in the chanter. Well, I would love nothing more than to go on for quite some time tonight on this because I love the topic, but I feel that in our short session tonight, you've been given the fundamentals upon which the whole system is based. After this, it's a matter of just adding a word. I'll give you one example, and that's all we have time for before we go to questions. But if I wanted to play a G grace note on low A and a terlua to low A, I would take the G grace noted syllable for low A, which is H-I-N, hen, and add the word darid, which is spelled D-A-R-I-D. And so it would be Hundred, hundred. Well, there's more. Donald, yes, I just want to follow up that with that. That's a perfect. It's a perfect um, segue into 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 what I want to ask. Okay. For some, how, what do you? What are your thoughts on the evolution of how we play movements like that, um, mainly the Torlo and the Krungo, where? The, 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 the cataract itself doesn't necessarily evoke the same rhythm. That's right. Some In one of the articles <clears throat> that uh, has appeared up on the web on Countrock, and if I'm not mistaken, it's the Wikipedia article, they imply that it's a language which cannot be spoken. And what what they're getting at is there are instances, for example, where we might have, let's say, an echo movement on D. Well, the counterrock's awkward because in the middle of all that, we're going to have a consonant that we have to stretch, and we normally don't do that in our language. So that's what they're getting at. But sometimes the words seem like they're really hard to pronounce. The word for that, what I just played, would be, if I were to time it that way, he hurrah hurrah <laughs> I've gotta hold that R out for a long time. I'll do it again. He hurrah hurrah I think I know where you're headed with this, Vincent. Tell me if I'm on target. Basically, what's happened in recent years is that there has been a door flung that hitherto was closed to pipers. And that is access now to manuscripts that were only available to a privileged few people. Now, any piper that wants to get to the Peabrook Society website, if they have enough ink in their printer and enough paper, is invited to download these fantastic manuscripts. And when we look at them, not only the Count Rock, but when we look at some of the others, we begin to see alternative ways of timing things. For example, where we've been trained, many of us, to play an echo movement on B like this. We suddenly see things like this. And where we were trained to play the burl, we suddenly see So I think we can't argue with this kind of thing. We've got to realize, yeah, there must have been different ways of timing the movements. 
and it raises lots of questions about, well, what are some other ways? And a lot of the, the students of PROC are beginning to bring these to the surface. In the MacArthur McGregor manuscript, which relatively recently became available to everyone, we begin to see these different timings. We look at Donald McDonald's manuscript, we see different timings. And a thing that Andrew and I have sat around and chatted about for more than a few minutes is how so few cadences appear in some of the old manuscripts, particularly in the Campbell Countrock. Andrew has done a lot of work with what happens if we just go with the Countrock and don't, don't add things in. And he's come up with some beautiful arrangements of tunes. Andrew and I had a wonderful session with Dr. Angus MacDonald up in Skye a few years ago. And uh, this was the theme that he presented. He said, how about we look at these as they, they appeared in the old manuscripts? He went through about four P-Rocks. And uh, movements were timed differently. Movements were played as melodies rather than melodies heavily interfered with, I should say, with cadences. So I think your question is leading to all of these things. Does that, does that answer it in any way? It does. I mean, that was, I mean, that's really, um, I mean, you know, Alan McDonald comes to mind because his, yep. that's, that's, a, that's a big underpinning of what he talks about when he yes. talks about, um, yes. you know, singing and, and, and giving and things like that. And, uh, and, you know, the way he plays, the way he plays some of those movements is, you know, according to his, his, uh, his theories that it's the way they were played back in the day. Yeah. And I, I, I think the only, the only caution I would add to that is even today, Scotland is a patchwork quilt of little communities and regions. And it's, it boggles the mind to think of somebody living within a 10 mile circle for their entire life and never traveling outside that circle. But I think a lot of that took place in ancient days. So wouldn't it be likely that there would be local styles of doing things and no one right style necessarily, but different styles? And I think exactly. And, and you know, in speaking to the evolution of things, I mean, you know, when you think about P Rock and, 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 you know, how it scares off a lot of new pipers, um, you know, there's reasons for that. I mean, when you get into the heavier, heavier parts of the music and the heavier movements, I mean, they're, they're tricky to yes. learn and they're tricky to, to digest. Right. And you have to wonder, you know, pipers today were no different than the pipers then. And if they, if we, if their pipers today would have hard times with a crumb with a mock, I'm yep. sure that pipers back then had a hard time too, yes. or maybe not if the movement was played differently. That's Maybe correct. more, more, can, you know, more, uh, like with of, the, uh, like with the crossing noise on the, uh, Terlowith and Krimlowith <laughs> exactly. built right in, right? <laughs> the, uh, redundant low A, it's just like, oh, it's redundant. Uh, let's, uh, before, before we get sidetracked too much, I want to reach out to our audience cause we got a couple of questions. Good. Okay. So, uh, here's, Vince, a, I enjoyed that. That was a good question. Here's a uh, Michael Miller. Good. Uh, we're going to unmute you here, Mike. Hey, Mike. Are you, are you there? Hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. Mike Miller. Earth to Mike Miller. Accidental hand raise? I think so. <clears throat> okay, how about Cliff Roberts? Cliff, go ahead. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Very well, Cliff. Hey, how are you? Hey, Donald. How are you? Good, Good to hear. Good. Great, great session. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm glad you could tune in. As far as, far as a, a beginner and intermediate uh, PBROC student, do you have a list of um, P-Brocks that it would be good to start with or yes. kind of introduce a person to the counter rock? Yes, I've been giving this a lot of thought lately. 
uh, and uh, uh, yes, I've been giving this quite a lot of thought. And um, I'll begin by being a little bit self-serving and saying that in my Countrock course, I have chosen uh, particular uh, graduated steps of excerpts from Peabrock that lead you into the language in a very smooth sort of fashion. So um, that's I am going to recommend that that's certainly one avenue to pursue. Um, and it's the Countrock course, and it's uh, available various places, but I know that Andrew has some here at the Piper's Dojo. Yep, um, I got a copy. I'm also um, thinking, I've given a lot of thought to tunes to get people going on all this stuff. And I overcame my desire to present rare and unusual and scarcely heard tunes and said to myself, you know what? Some of the best tunes are some of the better known ones. So I'm now going to proceed with a list of four tunes that I recommend very highly for study to get really get some background and experience. The first one I'm going to recommend has become one of the most frequently used to start people. It's The Company's Lament. Um which I think is in Peabrook Society Book 1, and it's getting used in some of the recent courses to try to get people going in Peabrook. The next tune I would like to recommend would would be Struan Robertson's Salute, uh, which is in Book 8 of the Peabrook Society. And after that, I would like to recommend the Monroe Salute, which is in Book 9. Uh, no, Book 11, I think it is. I'm going to be honest with you, I can't remember. It's 9 or 11. And there is one typo in the variations. There's a, a, a C in place of an E. But if you look at the rest of the variations, you can sort make it match up the way it should. And the last tune I'm going to recommend uh, as a starter tune to really get the hang of it all is one of the most frequently heard. And it's Bengari's Lament, which doesn't appear in the Peabrook Society, I don't think. It's only in the Kilberry book. And it's tune 100 in the Kilberry book, I think. Um, and between these four tunes, a person learns to play Ordinary Terralor Krimlor, Terralor Krimlor Brebach, Foscaccia uh, Krimlor, and then another one with Ordinary Terralor Krimlor. The, the, the three main kinds of Krimlor and Terralor are contained, plus a host of movements. So that was a good question. I hope that answer helps. Okay, uh, <clears throat> thanks a lot, Cliff. Let's move on. Let's see. Misha Murdoch has his hand up. Hello, Misha. Anybody home? Let's see, this happens a lot. People <laughs> press the button and nothing happens. <laughs> well, Misha, I'd love to hear from you if uh, if it works. <laughs> yes. Misha did have two questions. Okay. What is a what is what does convey mean? Okay. And how long have you been singing? Okay. First off, that word convey, it simply means to pass one idea. In this con in this situation, it means to pass one idea from one person to another. And this spe specifically means to, tra to transfer a musical thought or idea from one person to another. And how long have I been singing Kaltra? My first piping teacher i can i can uh, if i can butt in here oh go right ahead when we did the uh, audio yes when we did the audio for the cow rock books uh which as a side note are definitely available at piperstojo.com <laughs> uh, 
uh, it was funny because your voice is much, much younger than it is now. Yes. It has like a significantly uh, more uh, supple timbre. Thank you. So to speak. Uh, but, uh, but again, I digress. Go ahead. Brian, Brian was making the observation that the pitch is rising on the bagpipe, but I think my voice is lowering in pitch day by day. I, it's difficult. The pipe pitch is going one way, my voice is going the other way. But to answer uh, Misha's question, um, my first teacher would sing things to me when he was teaching me the tunes, not only Peabrook, but the, the light music as well. And so I quickly got onto the idea of learning things by singing them to get the feel. And every piping teacher that I've studied with throughout my life has always sung to me. And the probably the, the people more than anyone else were the late Robert Brown and Robert Nichol. And there's a quote, a famous quote of Bob about that came from Bob Brown. Lots of times people are inhibited about singing tunes. They just still say, well, I don't think I have a very good voice. But that's not the point of singing. The point of singing is to get the music inside you, off that page and inside you, so that you can produce it from yourself. And so the words from Bob Brown to the student who was reluctant to sing where he would say, I don't care if you sing like a Caruso or a Crow. It makes no difference to me. Sing. That's great. So uh, thanks, Misha, for that question. Let's move on. Chase Hamilton's got his hand up here. Oh, very good. Chase, you're on. Chase, you're on. All right. Uh, Donald, you mentioned that um, your first piping teacher used to sing also to light music, too. I mean, I've read that counteract is usually used for the P-book, but it can also be used for light music. Yes. And here's, here's what I want to say, Chase. Um, I've had some very keen friends and associates who've taken the system that I'm presenting tonight and they've configured it to work with light music. But, I'll, right. but my honest opinion is it's very cumbersome to use for light music. And so, therefore, I think a person, it's more functional and practical to make up a counter-off. And it doesn't have to be the same words all the time, just something that sort of sounds like the tune. I'll just try and do that right now. Do you have some tune in mind that you might be thinking about? Well, not really. I just uh, yeah, I just remember hearing you talking about the syllables earlier in the uh, webinar. And uh, I was just kind of thinking, like, well, if someone trying to sing light music, it would, prob it would probably get very confusing. And uh, uh, what is some a hornpipe or a jig or something like that. All right, well, you know, a melodic hornpipe that's very popular in folk music, and I love to play, not that it's a big heavy tune or anything, but the Jolly Beggarman has got a great melody, and if I were just going to make up any old syllables at all, I think it would do the necessary. I might sing, in Ireland, they call that diddling a tune. And Bob Brown's sister, Bessie Brown, was later realized in Scotland to be a national treasure. And we should have a whole program about her sometime. But she was a very, she lived very simply. 
and she was wonderful at tying salmon flies. And the salmon fisherman gave her a simple house to live in, in a boy. And she, she taught all the local kids to play the pipes. And I have recordings of her singing beautiful marches to spays and reels. And I dare say there are very few pipers in the world that could play them as well as she sang them. Anyway, uh, she was in a wheelchair for most of her life, but it didn't stop her from contributing to the local kids and teaching them. And that's the way she would sell it. I'm hearing a lot of talk. Oh, uh, hold on. Let me, uh, let me mute uh, Chase here. Okay, then you should be good to go now. Okay, sorry. Um, I, I was just going to make a comment. Uh, in Scotland, they, you know, not in the upper parts of Scotland, they call that type of singing cantrick as well. Okay. They do. They do. They give it the formal name of Countra. I was just listening today to Rona Lightfoot, and they've got a YouTube video of her at a, at a session, and, and Alan McDonald is singing along with her, and she's got great musicians backing her up, and she's singing light music in, in Countra, in her own Countra, and it's moving. The reason it's moving is the more you understand piping and the more you appreciate excellent piping, that's what's represented in her singing. Uh, she knows what's up, and boy, does it come through. It's very inspiring. It makes you want to go play those tunes. But you're right enough about that, Vince. In the north of Scotland, they call that count rock, and they sometimes call it a Porsche de Ville, which means the music of the mouth. Well, who else has a question? I, uh, this one's a good one from David Hogg here. Oh, good. Uh, <clears throat> when learning a P-Rock, do you recommend writing the ground and first variations out at Canrock? Yes, that's a great thing to do. Um, something I'm discovering is that people take in music in a host of different ways. Some people are very auditory. I've met pipers who can hear something sung to them one time and they totally understand how to play it. I've met other pipers who can see it written out and with just a little bit of coaching quickly get into the subtleties of the music. I've also seen pipers who relate better to the words than to the notes on the page, either writing them or singing them. So I would respond this way, Dave. I'd say try that, and I think it's going to help you learn the tune very effectively. Great. Thanks, Donald. Before we, uh, we've got a few minutes left here. I just wanted to, uh, 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 the second topic we wanted to talk to you about tonight um, is just, uh, we've been talking a lot on pipehacker.com and on last week's webinar about the, um, you know, the judging system in the EOSPBA. And um, um, one of the things that occurred to me is that you were involved at the very beginning uh, with the EOSPBA. And it'd be great to hear a very brief um summary of, you know, how did this all begin and where do you think we are right now? I'm glad you asked that question, Andrew. Um, the point I would like to emphasize is things have changed a great deal since the early days of the USPBA. They've changed largely be because the interest in piping has widened and deepened. <coughs> I dare say there are more people involved in piping by far by far than there were in the early days. And so here's the rub. In the early days, 
the mission that was put before us was to try to equip people to sit down at that bench and offer a constructive criticism to the people who came to play. And I won't go into depth about how primitive things were before that took place, but I'll say briefly, the modern competitor probably would not be satisfied with the way things were before that took place. We literally had scorecards. We didn't have criticism sheets. And they were just like a little postcard, uh, and you would just write a couple remarks. And if you got that, you felt lucky that you got that. And at the time, people were sort of okay with that. But as more and more people started to play the pipe, the expectation got bigger and bigger about, oh, I really want something constructive to take home. So that's how we started the judges training program. And the basic idea was that there would be seminars to help broaden people's knowledge and understanding and that there would be apprentice training so that inexperienced people could sit with experienced people and try to learn from them. And then there would be testing to see how they were doing. I'm afraid, in my humble opinion, that we've moved past that now and some of those, some of those aspects don't work anymore and some of them are not going to work for the future. Here's the underlying problem, and I'll speak at first about PBROC. The notion has now been being presented to people who want to become PBROC judges that if they attend some seminars, if they pass a written test, and if they sit with an experienced judge, then they can become PROC judges. The unfortunate thing about that is that's not good enough. The problem is, and some people may not like to hear this, but the problem is that if someone really wants to be a PROC judge nowadays, they have to become fond of learning. And if there's any interaction with the EUSPBA, it should be to inspire them to begin a life of learning. That's the only way we can grow as judges to meet the future demands. What's been brought to the table that's new is an explosion of knowledge. And just reading a few tunes and a few books, playing a couple of P-Rocks, and being taught a few ground rules on how to evaluate a performance simply won't do in the future. Because here's the reality. As things move forward, versions of tunes are going to get presented to judges that they never knew existed. Now, for all the talk of when is this stuff going to move forward, the gate, which will remain closed or be opened, will be who sits at the bench. If those judges cannot take in new information and give it some sort of worthwhile musical assessment, then the progress of piping will stop right there at the judge's table. So, trying to put this in a few words, it's a new ball game, and we can't keep using the old methods. They were good for a while to get some people on the panel, However, it won't promise a bright, 
happy future for the development of piping and pivot playing. It's going to require people like the late George M. Bell, the late pipe major Donald McLeod, the late Robert Brown, and Robert Nickel, and the late pipe major John Wilson from Toronto, who were constantly learning. They never stopped to the last breath they took. They never stopped learning. So this misconception that you can get a certificate handed to you and you now know all there is to know is no longer valid. That's a big problem. And I think the future will lie in inspiring people to be lifelong learners, not in giving them a certificate. I think that's how do you how do you how do you actually assess someone as a lifelong learner? I mean, is that does that come out in George Bell is the most recent you know, example of the kind of person I'm talking about. It's by their habits, their behavior. George was constantly learning to his last days. Uh, so is that was pretty apparent if you ever went anywhere near George Bell. Uh, how do you assess that? Well, I suppose one way to assess that is to really offer a challenging test. I've had the privilege of working with some of the judging candidates over the years. And as I, the last, on my last encounters with them, I did not give them sol solvable problems. I gave them insoluble problems to see what they would do with an insoluble problem. There's some real hard issues that can come up about PBRAC. I gave them the real hard issues. And the reason I did that was to try to break them out of the mold of, well, once I pass this test, I've got it knocked for life. I didn't want them to leave the training course with the feeling that get the questions right on the written test and you know all there is to know. That's not doing anybody any service. Um, I have heard that the, uh, the testing process is more like that now in that you're presented with you know, uh, reasonable scenarios rather than with, you know, multiple, multiple choice or something, you know, which, uh, which is, I think that is positive. I mean, one of the things that we've been arguing is, is that the ultimate, you know, uh, or one, or one of the key ways, um, to monitor, you know, someone. And I, I think this could, this could potentially sort of, um, <clears throat> combined with what you're saying is that, uh, um, your your activity, you know, to stay active and to be uh, competing or teaching is uh, is vital, and uh, to to use people's credentials uh, is a great way to certify adjudicators. Do you agree or disagree that? Well, like, I, you know, um, one of the criticisms which uh, is, is definitely valid is that you know, what about excellent teachers? Uh, you know, even if they if they're not perhaps the best player. I know a person who made it to the rank of amateur one piper, who has made a lifelong study of Peabock, who would be so far... I know who it is. Yeah, he lives in Boston, yep. And <laughs> uh, this person isn't allowed to go into the program. And now he's had some health issues. I don't know if he'll be able to go into the program. But um, without even going into the program, this individual would be light years beyond many of the people that are serving on the panel now in the PROC capacity because he's well acquainted with the various, many various ways of playing these tunes and approaching them. 
Um, let me, here's a thing that gave me an eye opener. I have a dear friend who is um, a thoracic surgeon and he's a young man and he got to the point where he was a teaching doctor and he currently works in a major city hospital. Now, he told me that a while ago they had to do periodic checks on where they stood in their field. They were tested orally and written tests and so on. They've increased that frequency now. They have to do several of those a year to maintain their license. To answer your question, I think that's one way. If, if people feel that testing is a viable indication of whether someone's staying up on their field, that's one way it could take place. I would prefer to, before we wrap this up, because I think we're getting close to the end of our time tonight, but I would prefer that it just be done by example and, you know, you can tell a tree by its fruit. And there, <clears throat> I guess I'm out of place to name some names of some people that are outstanding, but we have some people on our panel that are outstanding. They write excellent criticisms and they're very clued in. And to me, that's all the testing need be done. You can read it in a criticism sheet. You either see insight and constructive suggestions, or you see people hiding behind vague statements with bad handwriting that nobody can read. Is that any answer to your question? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it's a big topic. I, you know, there's nothing more frustrating um, than... Uh, personally playing for someone who uh it's not it's not that uh they don't have something to offer necessarily but that there are some who could offer more who aren't uh, able you know and it's frustrating on a personal standpoint but it's also frustrating uh with students yep it's a big deal you know oh, big um, deal well you're trying to get people into the art yep. form yep you're trying to get people into it you know people first second third time ever competing yep per se and um they get a they get a crit sheet uh, a score sheet that's uh, just completely uh, not not just useless, uh, you know, uh, but also discouraging yeah, uh, for, exactly. for players. And and I don't think it's anybody's. I don't think it's necessarily that per, that judge's fault, right? Right. But, uh, but it is something that needs to be dealt with, so that the people who can really offer what needs to be offered. So so anyway, we. Uh, <clears throat> um, you, you know, we're looking forward to continuing to discuss that and, and uh, hopefully get people to not only participate in the discussion, but also to, uh, you know, I, I think one thing you mentioned is that the mentality needs to change and must change in order to move forward. Yep. And um, well, there's a mentality, too, that discourages risk-taking as well. I think that's right. one of the things that needs to be encouraged is, is you know, for players to take that risk of playing that other you know, arrangement of a two. That's right. Excuse me, of a two or another setting that is unfamiliar to pretty much anyone listening yeah. to it. If I could just touch on that real quick. Um, yep, I'm getting the high sign from our engineer, but I'll try to be brief, and I'll say that. Highly paid engineer. By the way. <laughs> um, one of the cutting-edge people currently is Alan McDonald. Notice this. Alan is not playing his cutting-edge settings on the boards at competitions. He's playing them in the recital hall. Here's the point I'm trying to make. If if someone's going to go into an, a really deep area that's very obscure, first off, it's important to probably provide 
a, a written version of what you're going to do to the adjudicator, number one. Number two, uh, it might reach a point where it's so esoteric from the mainstream of understanding that maybe sometimes the concert hall or a concert format is the appropriate place to challenge people's minds. It's difficult, but um, it's like render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. You know, there's a realm within which most people judges can follow what's happening. And then it can get to a point where it's beyond their ken. And that's another area that needs to be looked at. You know, how far can we go before we lose the understanding of the judge? And the other side of the coin is, what can the judge do to keep current with the new information that's constantly emerging? Um so anyway, this is a juicy topic for sure. I'm sure there'll be more on the on the webinar. But anyway, I want to thank uh, Andrew very much for having me on. And um, I look forward maybe in the future to having another go at some more topics and, and hopefully more counter Great, Donald. Well, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Uh, definitely uh, uh, really, really good thoughts. So uh, I guess we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks very much, everybody out there. Uh, at, at one point, we had 32 people listening, which is really awesome, and uh, we really appreciate your support. And uh, we'll be back here next week. Vin, what are we talking about next week? Next week, um, I think we were going to talk about um, competition and how to be ready and what you need to know and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to talk about getting ready for competitions and some of the basics that you might need to know. And for those of you who consider yourself experienced, I will I will talk about things that you're probably maybe doing that you shouldn't be doing. And then I will allow anyone who's ever seen me compete to point out all of the things I do that are awkward and uh, blatantly unprofessional. So uh, <laughs> until then, um, we'll see you later. Now the podcast will be uh, up on the uh, pipehacker.com site uh, sometime tomorrow. So, uh, if you're tuning in late or if you want to spread the word to your friends, uh, you can point them in that direction. And it is, uh, the feed is also available on iTunes. Uh, that is official. It should be uh, searchable and findable and all that good stuff. Great. Well, thanks very much, everybody. And uh, we will see you next week. Bye for now. Good night, all. <laughs>